we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. This is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center. And our guest this week is maybe a little unusual because he's not somebody who's involved directly in the policymaking area. It's Professor David Stoll, a professor of anthropology at Middlebury College. And the reason I wanted to talk to him is he wrote a piece recently in Quillette, which is an online journal, in response to that blockbuster New York Times reporting about child labor among illegal immigrant minors. And his piece is called, Why Are Underage Central Americans in U.S. Factories? And the subtitle is, Debt and Migration Spirals Have Turned Asylum Applications into a Charade for Exploitation. Now, anybody can bloviate on this stuff. Look, much of what we do here is bloviating. I don't want to sell us too short, but Professor Stoll's got actual direct experience because he's been doing field work for years in a Mayan community, an Indian community in Guatemala and seen what the dynamics are of migration. And so this is informed by actual experience with actual people who have migrated or whose relatives have migrated. And so I thought it'd be very valuable to hear from him. Thank you for coming and joining us. And if you could just start by telling us how you got where you are and frankly, what is anthropology (laughs) and how does one get into it? How I got to Guatemala was, first of all, my interest in born-again Protestantism. I was at least anthropology adjacent uh, from the 1970s onward, and I became very interested in the success of evangelical Protestant missions. Which are very widespread in Guatemala, right? Oh, yes. Evangelical Protestantism is, is booming right. in Latin America, even though this used to be you know, known as the most Catholic part of the world. So I got started on the subject of evangelical Protestant missions, and then I moved to the question of why is U.S.-style born again in Pentecostal Protestantism. Why is it so ragingly popular in Latin America? And that subject got me to Guatemala, Mm -hmm. because by the early 1980s, Guatemala was the most evangelical Protestant country in in Latin America. Something like a quarter of Guatemalans were Protestants by the 1980s. And by the time I got to Guatemala, Guatemala was having a civil war. Right between a right-wing military government and a Marxist guerrilla movement supported by Cuba. And so I migrated from the subject of born-again Protestantism to the subject of how do people survive an ugly, ugly conflict like this with village massacres and kidnapping. And that transition brought me to the town of Nebak, an Ashil Maya town, indigenous town in the Guatemalan highlands, which happened to be, at one point, it showed a lot of support for the guerrilla army of the poor. Subsequently, it was retaken with great bloodshed by the Guatemalan army. And in the course of these events, 
Nebach experienced a wave of enthusiasm for born-again Protestantism. Hmm. So when I began to spend serious time in Nebach in the late 1980s, I was doing so because it was a place where I could talk to survivors of an ugly civil war. It was a town occupied by the Guatemalan army. It was under close watch by the Guatemalan army. Guerrillas and their supporters were still fighting on from the hills. But the town itself was becoming an NGO magnet for aid and development organizations to show up. And so I was, as an anthropologist, I was able to fit in with a small flow of foreign aid volunteers. And so that provided my cover for getting to know the place. Interesting, interesting. Do you speak the Mayan dialect the people there speak? To my shame, I do not. Okay. I've certainly tried to learn the language in the late 1980s, and if I'd known that I would be coming back into the 2020s, I would have made a greater effort. But at the time, to talk about aid programs and what the Army had done and what the guerrillas had done, I was able to get by in Spanish. Most people in the town speak some Spanish, and so because of what I was studying, I could talk to lots more people in Spanish that I would not have had time to talk to if I'd been learning a shield. So I made a serious mistake at that point. Before we get to the migration part, I remember years ago, I was on a group event in uh, southern Delaware where there were lots of Mayans working in the chicken factories there. Indeed, yes. And the interesting thing was it was a group organized academic conference kind of thing. And everybody we spoke to who was speaking, as it were, on behalf of the Mayans wasn't a local. There were Spanish nuns. There was a Puerto Rican Mm. state trooper. The only indigenous person, and indigenous, I mean, you know, related to the community, he was an actual Guatemalan Mayan, were um, two evangelical pastors, neither of whom they invited to the event. So uh, anyway, it was interesting. So to get on to the migration issue, what is this? You actually are author of a book as well that refers to the debt migration spiral. Just to plug the title of the book, it's El Norte or Bust, How Migration, Fever, and Microcredit Produced a Financial Crash in a Latin American Town. So what is the debt migration spiral you're talking about, and why does that matter to us in the United States? It matters a lot to the United States because it's not possible for labor migrants from the global south Mm -hmm. to get to the global north in Europe or in North America without borrowing a lot of money. I see. Now, even legal migration, they're probably going to have to borrow that, but for evade border control illegal migration, it costs it anymore. So so they have to borrow a lot of money, a minimum of several times their annual income in their country of origin, but the ratio could be even higher. They could be borrowing 10 or 15 times their annual income. And as long as their venture is successful, as long as they can find their way into the U.S. labor market, you know, often under the table in the informal economy, Right. as long as they can go to work quickly, the wage differential is such that they may be able to pay off their debt pretty quickly. And so for the roughly the first 
eight or nine years that Ashil Myers from Nebak joined this migration stream north, and we're talking about roughly 1997 to 2005. Okay. There was enough demand for their labor that they were able to pay these debts off very quickly. Mm-hmm. Then something very interesting happens around 2006. Around 2006, it becomes harder to find jobs. There are a couple of different explanations for why this particular migration stream from this particular town uh, found it difficult. But one possibility is the collapse of the uh, construction boom right. in 2006. That would have dried up certain kinds of jobs for them. But the people I talk to are mainly not in construction. Something else that may have happened is that the migration stream was so attractive to so many people from this town, mm-hmm. I think they may have flooded out the demand for labor in the micro markets where they were finding work. Right. This was such a good proposition for the first seven or eight years that I think they sent up so many teenagers, so many younger brothers, so many cousins, so many neighbors that new arrivals were couch surfing. Interesting. They were unable to find work, and being unable to find work means that you're not paying down debts, which, when I got into this subject about 15 years ago, they're paying unbelievable interest rates on their loans. They were paying 10% per month. Wow. So it's not even, say, the 10000 or whatever that you had to borrow. It's also these usurious interest rates on top of that. The interest rates were just shocking. Wow. And if they borrowed from a bank by giving the bank a lie about what they wanted to spend the money on, right. they're locked into a mortgage-style arrangement, which is going to lose them their house. Right. If they have borrowed from a relative or a neighbor, the negotiation of a late payer is more complicated, but they're still going to lose very heavily. Right. And so from the start, I became aware that while these smuggling debts can provide a very high return, they're also very, very risky because anything that gets in the way of repaying the debt can quickly lead to the loss of property back home, the property that's been put up as collateral for the loan. What happened in that situation once it was harder to get work? Well, what happened in 2007 is that this town actually had its own financial crash about a year before our famous September 2008 crash in Wall Street. Mm -hmm. They had a crash because, for whatever reason, so many people from the town had come up to the U.S., and so many people were not paying the loans back in Nebak. I see that they had a credit collapse. Interesting. What effect did that have on migration then? That shut down migration for several years. Right. They have a spectacular crash in 2007. They had a uh, gold rush type speculative fever from roughly 2002 or 2003 up to 2006. In 2006, more and more people are not coming up with with ways to repay their loans. They take out new loans. Creditworthiness is not being checked. And so the town ended up with all these people who were in multiple debt to multiple lenders, institutional and you know local money lenders. There's then a payments crisis. And as soon as the local money lenders and credit institutions stop making new loans, 
then that means even more migrants and their families are failing to repay their loans. And so you had a, the credit system seized up, the real estate market froze, prices for real estate that had just been bid up to spectacular levels, these now collapse. And, and new migrants can no longer find credit to go north. Right. And so in 2008, 2009, 2010, there's a, quite an arrest in the number of people going north. And I naively thought, you know, this is, well, this is the end. This will never recover. Right. And yet, fast forward a few years to 2013, 2014, the Obama administration is dealing with the so-called children on the border crisis. Right. With, you know, so-called children showing up at the border and asking for asylum. The children, I would hasten to add, are almost entirely working-age teenagers. Working-age by Central American standards. Right, yeah, that in their own country, they're working-age. In, in their own words. country, they're right. working-age. Right. You know, 14, 15, 16-year-olds, those were most of the so-called children. So were they coming because of the credit crash? In other words, what's the connection there? They're coming apparently because what we'll call the child migration and amnesty application loophole right? that was widened by the 2008 William Wilberforce Anti-Human Trafficking Reauthorization Act. Right. TVPRA is what they call it for shorthand here in Washington. Yes. I'll, I'll never be able to, <laughs> yeah, to repeat right. that acronym. But yeah. the interesting thing about this legislation that created all these new opportunities for human smuggling is that this bill is passed by both parties in Congress. Mm -hmm. I think Senator Joe Biden's name is on it as a sponsor. Right. The bill was signed by President George W. Bush. So this was a bilateral initiative to fight human trafficking on the border, to protect children from being used by drug and human smugglers. And yet five or six years later, the uh, Obama administration with Joe Biden as their vice president, is actually blaming the William Wilberforce provisions for making it impossible to enforce the border. Right. Yeah. Just to be clear for listeners, one of the most important elements of that was that the law says that underage migrants, under 18 years old from countries other than Mexico and Canada, in other words, countries that are not contiguous to the U.S., so that would include Guatemala, but everywhere else in the world too, Yes. have this special provision where instead of being just returned to their home countries, they're handed over to Health and Human Services, eventually placed with a yes. sponsor. Yes. Sponsors are yes. relatives in most cases. And like you said, it kind of incentivizes. In fact, you have a line from- Oh, it uh, provided this tremendous incentive, first of all, for most obviously Guatemalan, Salvadoran, and Honduran families right. to- send up their work-ready teenagers, some of whom, a good number of whom are actually over the age of, are 18 or over, but they're coming up with phony ID. Right. And you have a line in, the, uh, in your Quillette piece, humanitarian reforms to protect them have had the opposite effect of endangering more kids than they protect. Right. And the danger comes, you know, not so much from U.S. border enforcement. I mean, U.S. border enforcement can go wrong and Sometimes people die in the course of that, but the dangers that I hear about when I talk to Guatemalans and the dangers that I'm reading about in the press mainly are the dangers of the security situation in Mexico as they approach the border. I see. Because those approaches to the border 
for migrants now are apparently controlled by Mexican crime organizations, the so-called right. cartels. And when it comes to a cartel controlling an approach to the border, there are basically two possibilities. Either your smugglers are paying them a hefty safe passage fee, right? or if you're trying to sneak through, you're in danger of losing your life. Right. You have to hope that the Mexican cartels don't find you, in a sense. So, right. Guess what? They enforce the border. They have eyes and ears in every block. Right, right. And if two crime families have a billing disagreement with each other, yeah. Or if the cartel has a billing disagreement with a smuggling network, they can't take it to small claims court. Sure. They settle it themselves. They have to settle it up by grabbing each other's migrants. Right. Interesting. And at Interesting. that point, who knows what's going to happen? You can easily lose your life. Right, right. Yeah, you had another line in the, your Quillette piece really was full of really memorable lines, but you had one where you said, quote, whenever migrants are described as desperate, the next question should be, how desperate were they before they entrusted themselves to a smuggling gang? Unquote. Yes. Yeah, desperation is not a good descriptor of people in the town where I work and in many similar towns. It's just not a good descriptor of how these decisions are made. Western Guatemalan Highlands has pretty low homicide rates for Central America. Right. Indigenous towns have a lot of family structure. They tend to have fairly strong town halls. There are Indian towns that have gang problems, but usually they do not. And so, you know, running away from violence is just not a good description of how people in these migration-sending huts make the decision. It's, it's an economic decision. They are not being driven by violence. They are not fleeing violence. They are looking at their economic situation, and they are placing a bet mm -hmm. on the advantages of sending up a family member to earn U.S. informal sector level wages. Now, what in this bet, which is a good way to put it, because you know these people are no dumber than anyone else. They're they're weighing the odds and deciding whether it's worth going into debt and worth taking on this risk. How much does U.S. policy figure into the calculation of the odds? It would seem to be pretty important because mm -hmm. if you get all the way to the Mexican border and you can't get in, yeah. then why would you undertake all of that debt and all those risks? Whereas if you have a yeah. good chance of getting in, then maybe it's worth it. Yes. The interesting answer is that as far as I can tell, nothing that the Obama, Trump, or Biden administrations had done was making much difference to people. Now, that's a bold and broad statement, but and also I'm a year out of date. Right. I haven't been doing any interviewing since a year ago, so it is possible that I will show up in Guatemala pretty soon and I will hear stories of distress and woe about investing heavily in a trip to the United States that's been frustrated by U.S. border enforcement. Mm -hmm. But what I can say about my interviewing since 2007, from 2007 to 2022, what we would call changes in U.S. border policy right. don't seem to register much in NABOC. Their version of the border is very knowledgeable, sourced on the experiences of their family members and neighbors, and then, you know, possibly 
you know, certain success stories and certain horror stories that right. get beyond the bounds of a particular family or neighborhood. I was very surprised to hear Neba Hensei's debating why, broadly speaking, quotation, the question is, why does Donald Trump badmouth immigrants when he's welcoming even more of them than before, <laughs> question mark? Now, how did they come up with that interpretation? That interpretation comes, it's sort of a distillation of what they're hearing from fellow migrants and what, also what they're hearing from smugglers. Right. Remember, a smuggler is an expert, and, you know, he's a trusted expert. You trust him enough to <laughs> pay large amounts of money to him. And so what they're getting from the smugglers in some sort of the batting average of their family and neighbors was that under Trump, it wasn't any harder to get through. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. It, very interesting and very complicated, and I'm not sure I can explain it, but I guess the simple carry away for listeners would be, do not assume that month-to-month and even year-to-year changes in U.S. foreign policy have much impact on how Central Americans understand the situation. They have a more or less folkloric understanding of the border that's very different than our policy, legal, media debate understanding. And their folkloric understanding of the border might be more accurate right, right. than whatever we are taking away from all the confusing things we hear about it. As you suggested, though, earlier in saying about how that anti-trafficking law had made changes. You had another quote in your Quillette piece saying, quote, smugglers learned that if they recruited teenagers or adults with small children, border agents would be helpless to stop them, unquote. Yes. And so yes. what that suggests is not so much, and again, this is, I'm just uh, speculating here, but I think it's likely not so much that policy won't have an effect, but that you need to have a more fundamental changes to policy that would be required by statute. I think, yes, I, I would agree with that. I think the only thing that will make U.S. border policy more predictable to everybody is a statute that does not have a policy swing every couple of months in response to a new administration taking power or the administration prepping for the next election. Right, right. Interesting. So in other words, it's sort of like the changes that do get made from one administration to the next, or even within an administration, are almost like epiphenomena, whereas you need to actually change the underlying yes. reality yes. in order to change yes. people's but, calculations. But I should also add a caveat here. Who you see massing at the border right now mm -hmm. could be a rather different population than the people that I'm dealing with. Right. The people I'm dealing with have been part of a very stable migration flow from Guatemala that began in the late 1980s. That means, gosh, it is getting on toward 35 years old. Right. They're very experienced smuggling networks, and those smuggling networks are demanding large amounts of money from their clients. Judging from what I hear in Nabok, smugglers do get the majority of Nibak clients through, they promise as delivered. Interesting. Most of them get through the border. I can only speculate as to how that happens. I have some suspicions about tractor trailers. 
but yeah. I don't really have evidence, you know, to say that that's the way they do it. But the smuggler client relationship that I'm telling you about seems to be fairly stable and fairly successful. And Guatemalans also have the advantage of just being one country down right. from the U.S. border. And they have a lot of experience with Mexico. You know, what about Mexico can be safe? What can be risky? So there's a lot of experience there. My suspicion is that the Venezuelans and the Cubans and the Ukrainians and whoever else is at the border right now. Yeah, well, um, people from Georgia and Angola, too, I mean, whom I've actually yeah. met. Yeah. Those people, I would describe more, many more of them are probably do-it-yourselfers. Interesting. Right. Yeah. You know, I don't really know, but I think there would be a higher percentage of people who basically strung this together on their own. They had a cousin in Panama City, and then their cousin in Panama City got them in touch with somebody who could get them to Honduras, and they've basically been improvising all the way. Right. And they're not taking advantage of a relationship that takes them through U.S. border control the way a tractor trailer would. Right, right. Interesting. So one thing I wanted to ask about is, I don't know if you had been there since, but remember Vice President Harris went down to Guatemala mm -hmm. and said, yes. you know, do not come. And she said it twice. So I guess that meant they were serious. How is that taken by, to the extent anybody even notices that it happened? Did you get any sense of how Locals in Guatemala perceive that? Do they just sort of scoff at it? Is it just Yankee politician noise that doesn't mean anything to them? What kind of reaction do people have to that sort of thing? I was not in Guatemala during her visit, and I did not get the chance to ask anybody right. what they thought. But I'm sure that all of these declarations get listened to, and they might even be taken seriously, but they will be outweighed by what the smugglers tell them. And, and what they're They own. will be outweighed yeah. by their cousin who made it fine. Right, exactly. Three months ago, and why should I be any different? And I'm putting down good money. And this, this guy got, you know, three members of my family up over the last three years. And so it's taken as a reasonable bet. Right, right. Again, your Quillette piece was in response to that New York Times piece about young, you know, under 18 laborers. And the point you make that they're in their own countries, they are, you know, working age people. There's nothing un unusual at all yes. about a 16 or 17-year-old yes. working in construction. Yes, but they would be factory. working in a field. These are small-town ah. adolescents. They would be working in a field, or they would be behind the counter in a store, or they would be mopping floors. They would not be working near conveyor belts. And Interesting. So the, these people are too young to have any kind of industrial experience. Right, right. And yet, essentially, our immigration policy is doing what? Is incentivizing the arrival of these people, but then why do they end up in these kind of jobs? It's incentivizing family structures to place a bet, to try to turn their kids or younger brothers into long-distance earners ah. for the family. And so the family is putting up the money the family is mortgaging an agricultural field or even a house. They're borrowing a lot of money. And the deal, the bargain, is then that the, the migrant will send home money, not just to repay the debt, but to support the family. Right, right, of course. 
And so that's why these 17-year-olds are under tremendous pressure. You know, they're admitted as a 17-year-old. They might be 19, but they're admitted as a 17-year-old. They're told they have to go to school. They have a sponsor who's supposedly going to make sure they're in school. But they're, you know, most of them are going to be put into English language classrooms. They don't understand what's going on. Right. And what they're most aware of, aside from being lonely and afraid, is they're most aware of this dead clock. Right. And the cell phones, you know, now enable daily communication with the parents. And so the parents are on the phone haranguing or, you know, breaking down in tears. And so the kids are under tremendous pressure to go to work as fast as they can. Right. And they have no reason at all to observe U.S. labor laws. Right. They've just disregarded immigration law. They know that. Right. They've gotten around that. So why shouldn't they get around U.S. labor laws? Yeah, and they're not coming here to go to school. They're coming here they're to earn coming money. They're not coming here to go to school. They're coming here. I mean, they're volunteers. Right. When these migration streams develop, you do come across these really interesting stories in which kids did not want to migrate, but their parents told them, you have to do this for your family. Wow. Those stories do come up very occasionally. As a broad generalization, I would say most of these kids are eager volunteers, mm-hmm. at least at the start. Because they have very misleading imagery of just how wonderful the United States is. And sure. they, they, they have all this proof on their cell phones right, right, of what a great life we have. Interesting. And what a great life maybe their second cousin told them he had as he stood in front of a Toyota and took a selfie that wasn't yeah, his own car. Yeah, sort of the standard joke. I mean, everybody now understands this is the joke is, you know, sitting on the hood of your BMW, yeah, right. you know. <laughs> And the only problem being, it's never the person's BMW. It just happened to be parked in front of their their apartment, overcrowded with 10 other youth, you know, all being paid below legal minimums. So one thing you touched on, we got a few minutes left here, is that in the New York Times story, these series of long stories about the exploitation of these child migrants, you said that one issue is being treated with kid gloves, and that is the asylum advocates who sort of are pushing this narrative about how this is all essential yeah. and, uh, you know, groups like Kids in Need of Defense, Kind, which yeah. Democrats have as witnesses before a number of times. And then there's a yes. Coalition for uh, Humane Immigrant Rights in L.A., Churla, and others, and, and about how basically their responsibility in this is not being highlighted. What do you mean there? I have yet to see a single distanced or critical report on these organizations in Washington Post, New York Times, NPR. Right. I would imagine that your organization has looked at them critically, but, you know, you're not mainstream media. Right. And it's very obvious to me that the New York Times and Washington Post reports I read, that's my main source of information here, New York Times and Post have given us loads of valuable social reporting, so I really appreciate all the stories they've given us to work with, but they never, ever question the assumptions of the child advocacy and asylum advocacy organizations. And, you know, speaking specifically about the Central Americans, Mm -hmm. this was mainly a Central American migration crisis from about 2013 for the next four or five years. Right. In the words of these advocacy organizations, 
any Central American who shows up at the border needs to be taken seriously as a possible refugee from harm. Right. And that means they deserve not only provisional admission, they deserve legal advocacy. Mm -hmm. They deserve to be put into the asylum pipeline. And, you know, the asylum application process is has got to be lengthy and complicated just because it's uh, copycatting is so easy. Right. Inventing dire circumstances is so easy. It, it has got to be a careful, exacting process. But the advocacy organizations have successfully pressured the courts and the authorities into accommodating so many asylum applications that People who actually are, you know, arriving at the border in fear of their lives, they're lost in a crowd right. Interesting. of border applicants who I'm sure are 90 or 95% or even 98% just, just labor migrants. Right, right. Interesting. So, so the, the advocacy organizations have actually undermined asylum as a protection for people in fear of their lives. Yeah, and there's a lot of, I mean, I know a bunch of the people who report on this for the Times and the Post and elsewhere. and a lot of them are good reporters, but you're right that often the questions you're not asking are as telling as the questions you are. And it would be interesting even just to sort of say, here's, you know, good attention's gone awry kind of thing that uh, we just haven't seen. I, yeah, I would just like to go back to basics and how this all got started. The origin that I'm familiar with, because it's Central American focus is Sonia Nazario's Enrique's Journey. Okay. Now, that may not loom very large in why exactly the 2008 William Wilberforce Act was formulated the way it was, but Enrique's Journey was certainly part of the mix. And That is a book, right? I mean, I, yeah, it's yeah, a book. Right, yeah, I'm familiar with that. It's a very well-done book, and it gives you loads and loads of detail on a teenage migrant from uh, Honduras coming to the U.S. It's great reporting. It's a great book. I used to assign it, and yet when Sonia Nazario, the San Diego journalist and I think founder of Kids in Need of Defense, if I'm not mistaken, when she turned her reporting into advocacy, this is in 2006, 7, 2008, she simplified things a great deal. And, you know, her 17-year-old, you know, migrant became a child. Right, right. <laughs> even though he had already fathered a child back in Honduras, and his behavior was sufficiently delinquent back in Honduras that his family decided it's time for you to go to the United States. <laughs> Interesting. So he's under the age of 18, but he's already a lot more than a child. Right in terms of how his situation was going to be advocated. And I'm very sorry that, you know, people, I'm sure, with the depth of knowledge and compassion that Sonia Nazario had or has, I'm very sorry that they tracked themselves into arguments that I think are now contributing to endangering lots of people. Because right. I think not Sonia Nazario as an individual and not even advocacy organizations on their own, this constellation of forces right. has created the impression all over the world 
that if you show up at the border in a desperate state, ideally with a child, an actual child in hand, the U.S. will take pity on you and let you in. Right. And that sounds like a nice thing to do, to let people in. You know, we're a wealthy country. Why can't we do it? And yet as you massify the phenomenon, you get all kinds of unforeseen repercussions, which reinforce the power of Mexican crime families, and then also give arguments to right-wing populist politicians in the U.S., you know, for whom lack of immigration control now is a is obviously an issue they have to talk about. I mean, it has all kinds of unexpected repercussions for the mainly liberal Democrats right. who I did more to contribute to this situation than they want to admit. Right. Interesting. We're going to leave it at that. I really appreciate coming on. David Stoll, professor of anthropology at Middlebury College, and he's author, and we'll have a link in the show notes to this, in the online publication Quillette to an article entitled, Why Are Underage Central Americans in U.S. Factories? Thanks a lot for joining us. And if you find something new and interesting in another field trip to uh, Guatemala, please uh, let us know. We might have you back on again. Oh, thank you very much, Mark. I've enjoyed talking to you. I will. Okay, thanks. And finally, I wanted to draw attention to something we posted this week that I think provides some good background for people to understand what the administration is trying to do at the border. The blog post is by Andrew Arthur, one of our very prolific authors and analysts. It's entitled, What's Biden Doing with Migrants at the Ports of Entry? And the subhead is, regardless, his mass release scheme isn't legal. And the point of this is that it gives some background and explains the administration's strategy in trying to make the border crisis go away. And what they're trying to do is drive down the numbers of people coming across between ports of entry where the Border Patrol gets them and funnel them through ports of entry. That's the term for the legal crossing points. It doesn't have to be a water port. It's just a regular crossing point in El Paso or San Diego or anywhere. Those are called ports of entry. And so that's what this, uh, you may have heard of the CBP-1 app. It's a phone app is designed to do. It's part of the strategy. And the thinking behind it for the White House is to make the crisis part go away, make the disorder go away so that they'll be able to say, look, the crisis is gone because we don't have hundreds of people in huge groups crossing illegally and turning themselves into the Border Patrol anymore. They're coming in, quote, legally, unquote. And what the blog post does is explain what it is they're doing and what the rationale, the legal rationale they're using, and pointing out that, in fact, it's not legal, as several people at the center have written in op-eds, you know, more popular media, what the administration is basically telling migrants who want to come into the United States is don't break the law by crossing the border illegally. We will break, we meaning the administration will break the law by letting you in at a port of entry 
illegally. The immigrants the, are still illegal aliens. It's just that the administration is the one that broke the law by letting them in rather than their breaking the law by entering without inspection. That's the term for jumping the border. So I would recommend this to people. It does give a little bit of explanation on what's going on here because a lot of people are kind of confused. People, there are Democratic politicians who are saying, look, the problem is solved. Look, there's no more chaos at the border. Well, that's defining the problem differently from what the real problem is, which is huge numbers, millions at this point, of people who have no right to enter the United States just being let go into the United States. The administration is continuing that. They're just changing the way it's done and changing the location in hopes that people will stop writing about it and stop paying attention. Andrew Arthur's blog post points out it's still illegal and the crisis isn't going away. It's just changing form, if you will, and frankly, might be back in the old form as more people are just crossing between ports of entry anyway, but not turning themselves in, but instead becoming what the Border Patrol calls runners. In other words, people who don't want to be caught. And we have a whole video package on that done by another one of our authors, Todd Benzman. And that is on our website up at the top. Uh, the slideshow, so-called, features that. And then this blog post called What's Biden Doing with Migrants at the Ports of Entry explains the other part of it, explains what's going on at the ports of entry. That's it for this week. Rate and review us if you get this podcast on a platform that allows that. And tune in next week for another episode of Parsing Immigration Policy. <music>